0: Well, travel the globe and you'll discover countless ways we remember the deceased. Ways to memorialize or bring to memory those who have gone before us. Perhaps it may be a tombstone in a cemetery, maybe an urn on the mantle. In a bygone era, one would display what's called a deathbed portrait in the home. That captured the deceased lying in state before burial. You could visit the cliffs of Indonesia to see hanging coffins. Or visit the pyramids of Egypt, which honor deceased kings. In first century Palestine, the wealthy would go to a stone tomb. The body would be laid to rest inside this tomb, eventually The bones would then be collected and stored in an ossuary box, a way to remember those who've perished. One Sunday morning in particular, a tomb like this played a significant role in an event that would change the world. Buried, sealed, and guarded, a corpse appeared unsealed, resurrected. You cannot go and find a box or wrappings or visit this tomb. None of these things exist for you and I to visit today because Jesus rose from the dead. He changed Sunday morning for many stunned people and he's changed millions of lives since. This morning we're going to explore two Sunday morning encounters We're going to see how the resurrection of Jesus marked the lives of people, those who welcomed it and some who did not. And we're going to see then how this singular event, Lord willing, affects us. I would say that this Gospel of Matthew, if Matthew would say um, we're building a mountain, we're climbing a mountain, he would say that today we've reached the top. The climax of his Gospel account is Chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. The resurrection of Jesus is the main event, not only of his gospel, but all four gospels, and it's central to the Christian faith. We should not be surprised then that there are attacks lodged against the doctrine of resurrection. In fact, we will read about the first attack against it this morning, even how it's passed down to our day today. Yet you and I know we are not to be moved by such things, by attacks upon the Bible and attacks upon resurrection. Thinking about this, preparing for today, I thought that I think these attacks come in in two basic forms. People will attack through attacks of ignorance. This is where the attacker really has no knowledge of what they're speaking about. For example, someone may tell you, the Bible says, don't judge. But when we look in the Bible, when Jesus teaches, do not judge, he's actually giving us a grid on how to judge. Namely, don't be hypocritical in your judgments. So ignorance are the first kind of attacks we'll encounter. Again, most attacks fall into this one of two categories. The second are attacks of triviality. These are going to be objections to minor details. I thought about this in particular with this resurrection account. Different gospel authors will cite different women visiting the tomb, different numbers of angels, and so on. I contend that that doesn't disprove the resurrection, but it in fact proves it. Because at the resurrection, multiple eyewitnesses located at multiple places had multiple experiences with either the risen Christ or evidence of him. And by the way, in defending your faith against these attacks, in the first instance, you can always invite the skeptic to show you the Bible, show you where in the Bible they are getting this idea. In the second instance, sprint right to the gospel. Because we know that all of the Bible holds together. And the one who has concerns about the sitting position of an angel, well, that changes real fast when they come to faith in Jesus. It's not such a big deal anymore. All of this is a bit of a footnote, a bit of a journey down a different path, just to begin this morning, but I did want to share it with you. Uh, what we're up to this morning is Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to upend the Sunday morning routine for two main groups of people. Let's begin with the first. There's two women named Mary and Mary. Verses 1 through 10, this is Sunday morning for Mary and Mary. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. You know, that Sunday morning started off quite sad for these two Marys. The first Mary in our account is Mary Magdalene. The Gospel of Luke records that Jesus freed her from seven demons. The quote, other Mary, she's the mother of James, he's one of the apostles. In verse 1, they reappear on the scene. This is the scene they visited on Friday evening. Last time they were there, they witnessed two members of the Sanhedrin, this powerful religious body, those who voted to put Jesus to death. They saw two of these men bury Jesus in the tomb. You may recall them, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So then, no doubt, with grieving hearts, all of Saturday was the Sabbath. They would have grieved the loss of Jesus that day. And now it's early Sunday morning. And Mark records it's very early Sunday. And they return to the tomb. And then the faint glint of the early sun, as they squint to see in what is still some darkness, they would have experienced a, a bitter reality. We would call it a sinking feeling. This is the kind of feeling that you and I might experience if someone stole our identity. And perhaps we're scrolling through our our online account and we're looking at these charges and we're realizing we didn't make them and then it strikes us. Someone stole my identity. It's that type of feeling. Something you can feel inside. They would have thought that someone stole the body of Jesus. Jesus. This is unbelievable. Because if there was one thing that could make this Passover weekend even worse, it was the stealing of the Lord's body. Now, you and I read in verse 5, we know that they're going to be immensely helped by an angel. Again, you and I know what happened. They do not know this, not yet. And Matthew now takes us in verses 2 through 4 to what we would call a flashback. He's going to rewind the camera And he's going to backfill these events. An angel of the Lord has turned Sunday morning upside down. In verse 2, we read of his activity. It comes on the heels of an earthquake. By the way, back in chapter 27, verse 51, when Jesus died, Matthew records another earthquake. The first one was powerful enough in its own right. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Now in chapter 28, verse 2, there's a severe earthquake. Some of your Bibles describe it as a great earthquake or a violent earthquake. I mean, that makes for two significant earthquakes in one weekend. And in the wake of this earthquake, an angel descends from heaven. He he literally came down from the sky. And when he arrived, he rolls away the stone. This would have sealed the tomb. Now, keep in mind, this is a massive stone. Mark's gospel describes it as extremely large. By the way, the word he uses to describe the size of this, it's severely large. It's the same word used of our earthquake, severe earthquake. And depending on the stone, there's different ways of calculating this the the particular kind of stone and the size of the stone it could be anywhere from 700 pounds up to 2700 pounds and it's been noted that they're easier to, to to close than they are to open well the angel has no problem with this even sitting on the stone now if it was standing up vertically Perhaps the angel's elevated if it's gotten flipped over like a pancake. He's sitting much like you are in your seats right now. But I want us to see here that the resurrection of Jesus is not dependent upon him opening the door. Jesus did not need the door opened. Over in John chapter 20, for example, we can read there that Jesus passed through places, physical matter, doors. He did this in miraculous ways. His body is a glorified body. It's different than ours is today. Now what this did do was make the verification of resurrection possible. The movement made witnesses out of the guards and made witnesses out of others. They could look inside and so forth. Matthew tells us something of the angel's appearance. Note what is not appearing with the angel. He has no harp. No halo, no wings. In the Bible, some angels have wings, some don't. There's different types of angels in the Bible. There are some angels look, that look a lot like you do and a lot like I do. Those appearing to Abraham in, chapter, or in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, they, they looked human. In fact, some angels look so human you might miss the fact that they're angels. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 reminds us to show hospitality to strangers for some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now what Matthew emphasizes is their bright appearance like lightning. He emphasizes their purity. His clothing was white as snow. Again, that he wore clothing is a human manifestation or a a human, he appears as a human. You might even say that Matthew is emphasizing his his strength as he's able to to move that stone. It's implied. I want to focus on his announcement, and these are verses 5 through 7. The angel gives three commands to the Marys. First, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. We lose the force of this in English. He is really saying, you, you do not be afraid. The emphasis is on you, the listener. You see, others should be afraid. Others should fear, but not you, Mary. In fact, we're going to meet others in our account today who should be afraid. There are people in our day who should be afraid. In this life, some easily come to mind, those who are atheists or Satanists or cultists. There are even others who we may not consider as often, religious people, moral people, good neighbors. But when the tomb comes for each of us, and it will, all that's going to matter is where we are in relationship to Christ. If you belong to God, if you belong to Jesus, The angel points to the open tomb and he points to you and says, do not be afraid. He goes on. Jesus is not here. For he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Because we know that tombs exist for corpses. Tombs house the dead. But Jesus has risen. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they are co-eternal and they are co-existing. That means that God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. It means that they are one in nature and plural in person and diverse in their roles, yet each one of them played a part in the resurrection of Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your body. The Father and the Spirit both involved in the raising of Jesus. Jesus said he had a hand in that as well. In John chapter 10, verse 18, he predicts, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, which he did. In fact, Jesus said he was going to do this. We heard it there in John. He's mentioned it three times in the Gospel of Matthew so far. He predicted he's going to be raised up on the third day. Now, keep in mind, if you're doing time counting here, Keep in mind that the Jewish people reckon time differently than we do. They count it partial days as full days. Jesus died on Friday. He died before sundown. That's day number one. His physical body was in the tomb on Saturday, the Sabbath. That's day two. And then at sundown on Saturday, again, according to Jewish timekeeping, at sundown Saturday, technically it's Sunday. Day three. And we know that Jesus rose also in a new body. The angel invited the Mary. He said, come and see where he was lying. There's this cold stone slab. I want you to see it. There's a pile of linen wrappings. John chapter 20, verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up into place by itself. I love the detail there. And he gives one final command this angel does. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Which in fact they did. Galilee being the, the hub of the ministry of Jesus, he returns there one last time. But in these words, in this announcement of the angel, I want you to see something for yourself. I would call it a model for ministry. Verse 6, come see. Verse 7, go tell. Come see, go tell. Each Sunday, come and see. Come and see what God has done. Come to the gathering of God. We gather on Sunday because it is the day of the Lord's resurrection. That's why we're here on Sunday as opposed to Monday, Tuesday, or Saturday, or whatever. And in gathering, we we see the work of the Lord, and we see this in a couple of different ways. We, We see it through His Word. We see it through His people, the interactions that you and I enjoy. We see it through song and through prayer and so on. So we're saying, come and see, come and be filled. And then, go tell. Take what God has given you here. Don't keep it for yourself. Hold on to it, but go and give it away. Go and tell. It may be, through the week, the gospel message. You're giving the gospel message. We are talking about evangelism. It may be a timely word. It may be counsel from the Bible. It may be encouragement or exhortation. It may be an invitation, an invitation for others to come see so they too can go tell. Well, we see in our text that, that our Mary's go tell. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. In verse 9, they encountered Jesus. This is a wonderful interruption to their Sunday. How fitting it would be to be the first ones to see the risen Lord. I mean, these women have followed Jesus as disciples. You may recall they followed him to Golgotha, to that place where they crucified our Lord. They followed him to the burial in the tomb. And now, what a reward. The risen Jesus stands before them, and they're the first to see him. Jesus is alive. Remember, dead men don't stand. Jesus spoke to them. He gave them a greeting and a command and even a prediction. Jesus received their worship. They bowed down and grabbed hold of his feet. They probably felt a scar from the nail. What a reward for their faithful devotion to Jesus. And he goes on and says in verse 10 Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. There they will see me. Did you notice the first words out of his mouth? It's the most repeated command in Scripture. Now, you and I have encountered this concept of fear already this morning. In fact, it's the fourth time the words appeared in our text. Phobeo, you know the English word, phobia. In verse 5, it's the same command that the angels gave the first words to the women as well. And there, their contrast was with the Roman guards Mary, don't you fear. The Roman guards, on the other hand, they shook for fear of the angel. All of this unhealthy fear we're reading of, this is a fear that Jesus does not want you to possess. There is a fear that you and I should have, and it appears in verse 8. It appears alongside joy. Fear and joy. What strange partners. What odd friends. Yet in the soul of the Christian, they come together and they harmonize. Fear and joy. Now the fear of verse 8 is a godly fear. It's a reverence. It is an awe at who God is and it is an awe at what God does. He resurrected Jesus and he posted an angel to testify. That's going to invoke an awe or a reverence, Lord willing. In fact, that's why they left the tomb quickly with fear. Not afraid of God, but revering God. Joy accompanies fear. You see, there is room in the soul of the Christian for both of these. Both of these going together and not going against one another. The joy of verse 8 is a godly joy. It is a joy rooted in God and not rooted in circumstances. It's the double-barreled command of Philippians chapter four, verse four: "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I say, rejoice. See the women of verse eight; they left the tomb with a renewed joy. Emotionally, they're ecstatic at the power of God. Do you experience fear and joy this morning? Godly fear is going to grow within us as we understand who we are and we understand who God is. A godly fear will grow in us as we realize what Jesus did in the the previous chapter with his crucifixion and all of those events. As we realize that he did that for me. Godly joy grows as we get to know God better. As our relationship with God blossoms, as we shed sin and we say no to temptation, joy can sprout. I think we should do well this morning here to to stare into this empty tomb. Remember, this is not a funeral, this is a celebration. Jesus does not lie in a tomb. I think there's something wrong if there's a joylessness that that resides in our heart. R.C. Sproul asks How can there be such a thing as an enjoyful Christian? If ever there was an oxymoron, that is it. You see, when we revere God for the resurrection, it's a resurrection that redeemed our lives. We walk away joyful. We walk away from the tomb of our sin with with joy. In fact, when we put our hope in in the risen Christ and not in our circumstances, that allows that joy to, to blossom and nurture and grow. You see, the resurrection of Jesus interrupted Sunday for our women here. You notice that it did the same for others. It's to them that we now turn. We'll look to these guards and then the religious leaders. Verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together... They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You were to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, that's Pilate, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And the story was widely spread among the Jews. And it is to this day that latter stories still spread Today, someone stole the body of Jesus. Well, this Sunday morning, for these officials, the guards and the religious leaders, I would say it redefined the term disaster. I want to consider first the guards. This is extremely stressful. I mean, their whole day begins with another severe earthquake. Remember that. And we mentioned this was the second one over the course of the weekend. Okay, maybe they're a little bit rattled. But these are Roman guards. The Roman soldier was a well-trained, he's a fighting machine. He had weapons training. He could attack, he could defend, he can run, he can swim. He had the best armor and the best weaponry. Perhaps these guards even spoke to the crucifixion squad from Friday night. They had a file on what to expect. They were fully prepared to meet any man who'd be foolish enough to come out at night and try to steal the body. They stand ready Then out of the sky comes an angel. Friends, there's no page in the training manual for this. (laughs) The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Look back at verse 2. The Greek word for earthquake is the same root word describing the guards in verse 4. Verse 4 shook. The guards shook. Verse 2, earthquake, seismos, the earth shook. I think Matthew's recording two seismic events here, probably with half of a grin on his face. The text says that they became like dead men. Did they faint? I want you to note here that the only thing resembling a corpse at the tomb right now are these guards. The whole reason any of this is happening is because there was a corpse inside the tomb. Believe or the corpse literally got up and walked off. Assuming that they passed out. And I can't tell here from the order of events if they first saw the stone move and then fainted, or if they woke up to find the stone rolled away. Either way, they had to wish that they were dead, because that's quite possible underneath Roman rule. As a soldier employed by Rome, you can't just allow these things to happen. What do they do in verse 11? They make a mad dash to Jerusalem. They needed to get some help. I want to consider now the Jewish religious leaders, their Sunday morning. They would have been recipients of an unwelcome interruption. They heard a knock at the door. (laughs) It's the guards from the tomb. This can't be good. If they're not at the tomb and they're at our house, nothing good is going to come of this. So the chief priests bring them in and they hear their report. It's not clear if the guards actually saw the resurrected Jesus, but we know they saw enough that morning, enough to know the miraculous happened. In verse 12, the chief priests assemble with the elders. These are other Jewish religious leaders. Again, here's Jesus threatening their religion yet again. And they're going to resort to what we would call an old tactic. It's called the payoff. They did this with Judas Iscariot. And they're now going to dole out more money to Roman guards. These guys, there is no good path for them. I mean, they can be put to death for their failures on duty. In the book of Acts in chapter 12 and chapter 16, we, we see something like that for similar infractions. And this may be very well why they went to the chief priest first and not to Pilate. Well, the Jewish religious leaders, they need to issue an official explanation. I mean, this is bad. You're to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. How does this hold up in a courtroom? Mr. Titus, you said the defendant, Mr. Peter, stole the body while you were doing What? Sleeping. I mean, this explanation, it raises more questions than it answers. How do they know the body was stolen if they were asleep? Were they all sleeping at once? If they were sleeping, how do they know it was the disciples and not someone else? Did they all sleep through the entire theft? Keep in mind, a team of men had to come by night with torchlight. And they would have had to move that 2,000-pound stone with all the grunting noises that men make when a tractor's stuck in the mud. They would have had to unwrap the body, nearly fold the cloth, and then carry the body away. It's almost embarrassing to say this story with a straight face. You see in verse 14, the chief priests are gonna run cover with Pilate just in case it could be a problem. And this whole thing, this whole thing, it just might work if Jesus never appears. Verse 9, Jesus met the women and greeted them. John chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Luke chapter 24, verse 31, arriving in Emmaus, two men's eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 19, Sunday evening with doors shut, Jesus came and stood in the midst of the disciples. He showed them both his hands and his feet. Eight days later, same place with a man named Thomas. He showed Thomas as well. In John chapter 21, verse 6, he's yelling from the shore, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Peter almost fell out of the boat. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, 11 disciples worship him on a mountain in Galilee. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And Paul needs to get in on the action as well in First Corinthians chapter 15. He appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to the apostles. Then he appeared to one who was untimely born. He appeared to me as well. Jesus appeared because Jesus is alive. He interrupted Sunday morning. What would have been the normal duties for the chief priests at the temple? Interrupted. What would have been a, a normal journey to the tomb for the women? Interrupted. What would have been a, a routine guard duty for the soldiers? Interrupted. See, the resurrection of Jesus was alarming for everyone, but for some it brought a peace, and for some it brought a joy. You know, there's some here this morning who may not yet have a peace with God. Your sin separates you from God. And you've never repented of it. You've never turned from your sin. You've not come to Jesus by faith. You have not believed upon the resurrected Jesus. Now, spiritually speaking, we would say that, that your, your soul is dead in a tomb. But if you turn from your sin, and you believe that this Jesus died for you and rose for you, you were promised peace with God and forgiveness for your sins. There are others here this morning who have done that. Yet, peace eludes you. Something is is off. Something isn't right with God. Perhaps there's an unconfessed sin in your life. Maybe some of the basic habits, we call it just the bread and butter of our faith, reading the Bible and praying, talking to the Lord, things like that, those things have fallen off. Maybe you're trying to do what Christ did for you, you're trying to win God's favor or appreciate his love based on your works and the kind of day you're having. Well, today is the day to receive his peace. As sure as the tomb is empty, so too does God extend to you full mercy and and free grace by coming to him this morning, wherever you are on that spectrum. It'll interrupt the chaos of the day, it'll breathe new life into our souls, and it'll leave you and I happily interrupted with godly fear and with great joy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for dying for our sins and for rising again. I pray for these people here this morning, that if there be any who don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray for others, if they may have fallen out of step with you, that you would show them that, Lord, and very gently and kindly. Welcome them back. May today also be the day of the renewed relationship. Lord, we love you and we love that you hear our prayers. And we love that you care. We pray these things in your name. Amen.